while I rehearsed it with you um, in a slightly more entertaining way at the beginning. Tim and I have had a um, great couple of days canoeing down the Y. I really did feel like the old man at the end of the first day (coughs) or as the day wore on and my shoulder was aching and I wasn't sure whether I could paddle much more and um, really envious of Tim's youthful vigour or was it just greater strength of character, I don't know. But it did occur to me, perseverance does get amazing results. That's a very, very important lesson that Psalm 126 wants to teach us. Let me just set it in context of the songs of ascents so far. They were designed, we've said, to be sung on pilgrimage. Three times a year, the Israelites went on pilgrimage up to Jerusalem, up to the temple to worship God. And um, uh, Christians, therefore, have long wanted to appropriate these psalms as songs of our pilgrimage. We're not going to the temple. We're heading to a new heaven and a new earth, to being in the very presence of God. But we are pilgrims. We are followers of Jesus. We are people who are told to set out on a journey, the journey of our Christian life. So the issues that are raised for these Israelites are very real for us. We saw that the, the Psalms are set into little triplets. For instance, Psalm 100, Psalms 120 to 122 were very much um, uh, thinking about the issues of setting out on the journey. You never set out if you love this world too much. Psalm 120 explores a sense of frustration with this world and longing to be with God very important. You'll never set out if you're too frightened to set out as a pilgrim in this world. Psalm 121, which we dwelt on, it demonstrates the Lord's absolute protection of his people. He will not let your feet, your foot uh, stumble. Psalm 122, which we didn't uh, uh, look at, describes Jerusalem. But for Jerusalem, perhaps we should read God's new Jerusalem, his new heaven and new earth as a wonderful place that we should long for. Psalms 123 to 125 dwell, their emphasis is more on the um, uh, um, dangers, trials, difficulties along the way. For instance, 123 that we looked at last week in a little bit more detail explores how demoralising it is to be a despised minority. 124 is a a psalm of deliverance. The central psalm of each of the triplets is always about God's intervention. The first one is always about um, a, a, a lament. The second one is always about God's intervention. The Lord saves us, says Psalm 124. If he didn't save us, we'd be in big trouble, but he does. And then the third in every triplet is a, is a celebratory psalm. And, and 125 celebrates the security of God's people. So then we get to Psalms 126 to 128. 
a third triplet. We're going to look at 126 today. But uh, all three of those psalms sort of ask the question, why are we actually going to achieve anything? And uh, in these psalms, even in uh, the Old Testament context, it sort of broadens beyond just getting to the destination. But am I going to achieve anything with my life? The psalmist thinks as he trudges to Jerusalem, as he canoes down the wire, well perhaps not. Um, 127 says, well yes, if God does it, unless the Lord builds the house, the builder is labour in vine. No, without God we achieve nothing. 128 is a wonderful celebratory psalm of the fruit that God does give to his people. But Psalm 126 is the sort of lament end of this issue and that's what we're going to spend our time looking at. Asking the question, will we achieve anything? Um, And the answer begins to unfold in that psalm. The psalm says, yes, we definitely will, but only through perseverance. But there are three dimensions to the psalmist experience in Psalm 126 that we need to uh, interact with, to understand our own lives. The psalmist describes his joy, the psalmist describes his frustration, and then the psalmist commits himself to perseverance. Okay? Joy, frustration, uh, frustration and perseverance are absolutely vital in the Christian life for Christian pilgrims. And I want us to look at this psalm as a psalm about our life to try to understand what the psalmist has to say. Pilgrim people are people of joy, says the psalmist in verses 1 to 3. When the Lord brought back the captives to Zion, we were like men who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. And then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are uh, filled with joy. This psalm seems to have been written relatively late in the history of Israel, um, remembering actually the return from the exile. The um, people had been exiled, finally Judah was exiled in in 586 BC to Babylon. They lost the land, but then a lifetime later, they came back into the land. And at that time, there was great rejoicing. God has brought us back into the promised land. It is beyond our wildest dreams. We were like men who dreamed, he says in verse 1. We couldn't stop laughing, verse 2. Our our mouths were filled with laughter. We couldn't stop singing, verse 2. Our tongues with songs of joy. And the watching world, frankly, was amazed at what God was doing as we were brought back into the promised land. It was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. And in, a, in one sense, that joy is very much 
ongoing for the psalmist. Verse 3, the Lord has done great things for us. We are filled with joy. In a little while we're going to look at how that is tempered. But for now, we need to see that to be a believer, to be a Christian, is joyful. Christians more than... uh, more even than the, the, the Israelites of old, have innumerable reasons to be deeply joyful. We have a deep purpose in life. God has given us purposeful existence over against the, the aimlessness and trivial, trivial pleasures of much of the world. I'm, I'm shocked by how aimless people are sometimes. God has given us a community, his church, when our society around is fragmenting. God has given us us guidelines to making life work. When so many people are damaging themselves because they think anything goes and they discover too late the enormous damage that it, uh, it gives them. God has given us the real possibility of change through his, the empowering work of his spirit. I vividly remember a young Christian psychiatrist uh, uh, telling me that um, her boss, the professor, had taken an early retirement and when she, as a naive psychiatrist, uh, uh, asked him why, uh, why he'd taken early retirement, he said, because... Uh, I've had enough of psychiatry, he said. It's just rearranging people's problems. But real change is possible as God works in us by his spirit. We have, more profoundly than any of those things, God's forgiveness won for us by Jesus on the cross who paid for all of our sins past, present and future, so we now do not need to fear God's uh, judgment and God's wrath on the last day. We can be promised that we will be totally forgiven of all our sins. Our sins are not now a monstrous secret. They are a beaten foe. They cannot harm our eternal joy. We have the promise of God's everlasting, loving presence ministered to us by the Holy Spirit now. And one day that will become a face-to-face experience. Compare that with the dark loneliness of the rest of the world. We have the sure promise of a new heaven and a new earth Many of you will will know that that for me in particular the last ten years as I've more and more deeply appreciated the resurrection hope of the New Testament. That has been deeply precious to me because I love this world. I absolutely love God's creation. Um, I, I, I think for a number of years had this sort of residual thought that surely heaven couldn't be that good. Surely I would miss all sorts of aspects of God's 
uh, God's creation. And then I started to realise that as Jesus was risen from the dead as a physical human being now living eternally, his resurrection stood as the mark and the promise of our physical resurrection but also of a resurrection, of a new creation, of a recreation of the whole of God's universe. You will not miss anything in that recreated world. It will have all the goodness of this creation stripped of all its evil. We have the promise of being with God eternally. Jesus Christ died to bring you to God, says Peter. Again, that's difficult to get your mind around. Imagine the the best relationship that you've ever had at its very best moments. And then imagine that deepened and lengthened immeasurably. Imagine, imagine, Imagine meeting the most exciting leader in this world. Some people consider um, Barack Obama to be that and not many people would refuse to meet him and would be rather awestruck to, to meet him. He's, he's nothing compared with meeting the creator and ruler of the universe. Imagine looking over the shoulder of the most brilliant artist and having an opportunity to discuss his art with him. I don't know what images you, you need, but imagine meeting God, meeting Jesus Christ. We will. And there will be awe and wonder and joy and satisfaction in that. Christians have every reason to be joyful, says this psalm. C.S. Lewis um, described himself when he was first converted as the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England, but then confessed that he was surprised by joy. It came upon him and he suddenly saw what an incredibly joyful thing it is to be a Christian. If there is never any joy in your life as a believer then at best you have seriously missed the point and at worst you may not yet be a believer. But that joy is not an unalloyed. That's possibly the more important thing that I want us to think about this morning. Alongside joy for a believer now there is real frustration. The return from the exile in Old Testament days was a disappointment. That's what verse 4 is alluding to. Restore our fortunes, O Lord. Like streams in the Negev, they they uh, managed to rebuild the walls of the city. They managed even to uh, um, 
uh, substantially rebuild uh, the temple. But it wasn't like it was before. There's a very poignant passage in Ezra chapter 3 where they're describing the celebrations of the, the, the building of the, of the temple. And it says that those who remembered the temple of old wept whilst those who had just completed it rejoiced and the weeping was as loud as the rejoicing. That's what it was like in those days to come back into the promised land. It was good, but it was disappointing. And that's what it's like to be a Christian. We must take that seriously. There is ongoing frustration. There is ongoing disappointment. We are not there yet. Peter describes Christians in uh, 1 Peter chapter 1 as strangers in the world. We are people who are not really at home in this world as it is now. We are people longing for another country as Hebrews 11 describes it. We are people who've got a taste of the good things of God, but we haven't got them fully yet. Romans 8 says that the whole of creation has been subjected to this frustration. And we too, as part of that creation, now have to endure the deep frustrations of things not always going as they should. Evil exists in this world. And as we saw two weeks ago in Psalm 121, we are kept ultimately secure. And God does work even through those evil circumstances. Nevertheless, evil is real. And sadly, evil wickedness, badness is still in us. That's one of the most distressing things, isn't it? We are not fully Yet, the people that God called us to be. We find in ourselves that deeply shaming, that deeply embarrassing tendency again and again and again to fall short of the desires and the calling that we have and to wallow in the mire of our own sins. Other people still oppose God and oppose us, as we saw in the psalm last, uh, last week, scorning, mocking. God's people do not rule the earth. They are a despised minority and they always will be. See, anyone who doesn't experience frustration as a Christian as well has not begun to engage really with what it means to be a Christian now. I notice, for instance, there's an increasing tendency uh, uh, culturally amongst Christians to want to stir ourselves up into ecstasies when, we're, when we meet together. And that, there are good aspects to that 
it is good to celebrate the good things that the Lord has done for us. But there is, I think, often an underlying sense that any struggle, any disappointment, any um, uh, trial, somehow is sub-Christian. Well, it's sub our eternal destiny, but it's the painful reality of what we must endure now. God is not surprised when sin still dogs your footsteps, you know. Saddened, but not surprised. Jesus Christ died for all of those sins. Even the ones that take you by surprise. They didn't take him by surprise. God is not taken aback or somehow uh, thwarted when evil still has something of a go at us. That is the reality of the world as it stands at the moment. If you do not experience frustration and disappointment, you are not really interacting with the Christian message. If you think actually that all that we have to do is to stir ourselves up into a frenzy of happiness to become good Christians, then think again. The Bible wants to prepare us to be solid believers through difficult times. The only way that I can describe it when you see these two strands of a deep joy that Christians are given and and I think a deeper frustration with this world than an average non-Christian often has because they become resigned to it. The only way I can think of describing it is God gives us bigger hearts. Gives us a capacity to hold together in one human heart those two different dimensions to what it means to live now. And through that comes the result. The result is perseverance. Verse 5. Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. He who goes out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with him. This psalmist demonstrates in this experience of joy and frustration, he demonstrates at rock bottom a deep commitment, a commitment to sow with tears. He assumes there will be tears, note. It is no crisis and challenge to his faith that he is presently weeping. He assumes there will be tears. 
Now, there are many crises that people hit in their faith. Sometimes they're intellectual. I, I don't trust God because he doesn't make sense any longer. But it seems to me the most common one amongst Christians today is I don't trust God because bad things have happened to me. Well, did you read your Bible? Expect tears. I know it's a tough thing to hear, but it is a liberating thing to hear too. Because then, as another psalm puts it, you will have no fear of bad news. Tears caused by difficult relationships, perhaps. Tears caused by personal failure. Tears caused by infirmity. Our bodies do fail. A 40-something canoeing down the river, why realised that? And it'll only get worse. Expect tears, but in the midst of those tears, so. The New Testament takes the sowing image to, to, to be specifically for a, a evangelism, actually, but I'm not sure that uh, that's in the psalmist's mind here. I think he's just using the image of going out and, uh, 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 and sowing to, to mean getting out and doing what you need to do in God's world. Whatever that is, in the broadest sense of the world, serving God in the way that he has called you to do. You wake up feeling miserable, what do you do? Do you stay in bed? Or do you get up and get on with life anyway? The different, the, the, the response that you make to that issue will shape your life. Winston Churchill was asked to uh, speak at Harrow School just ten months after the end of the war. And um, here's an extract from what he said. Speaking about what we should learn from the war. He said this. Never give in. Never give in. Never, 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 never. In nothing, never give in. Never yield to force. Never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. Never give in. And I'm not sure, you know, that, that a lifetime later, our culture really has this nailed. It was absolutely central to British psyche 60, 70 years ago. But I'm not sure we've got it now. Maudlin Road actually in some ways is on the leading edge of uh, culture in this uh, society partly because we're not particularly traditional partly because um, we are overwhelmingly young and not all of those aspects of being on the leading edge of culture are good. 
Not at all. In fact, I see a level of emotional vulnerability uh, amongst us which is an enormous disruptor of faithful service. There's an underlying assumption sometimes, I think. If my emotions are not right, then I perhaps shouldn't do anything. And that is fundamentally wrong. It's vitally important to labour and strive and seek God for our emotions to be right, to have the true Christian joy. But there will be tears, there will be sadness, and Christian discipleship really makes a difference when it keeps going through the tears. When it responds in the way that Churchill told those young men to do. Never give in, never give in, never, 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 never. This is what we need to work on, it seems to me, what our culture needs to to work on. You will be hampered deeply if you haven't found the capacity to sow when there are tears, to keep going. And one of the key things that will give you that capacity is um, a clear grasp of the promise. So these last few verses have a promise in them. A real promise. A promise of a harvest. A joyful harvest. Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. He who goes out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy. And it seems an abundant harvest as well, carrying sheaves with him. I'm probably one, I'm probably the only one in this room and one of the few people in this country who has done the sowing roughly like um, ancient Israelites would have done and also reaped even sheaves um, because I come from an old-fashioned farming background. And though my father did use a fiddle, they used to just um, uh, sow the seed like this and he had a little fiddle that you strap on your chest with a, and, and then you operate a little mechanism that rotates at the bottom and spreads out the seed. Let me say, it is exhausting. You you know, you've got ten acres in front of you. You know, you've just got to walk up and down, up and down. And you've got to keep some steadiness about it, some consistency, otherwise you'll have thick seed and thin seed. You've got to see um, where you walked last time and walk the right distance away, away from that, otherwise you will double sow or you will leave whole gaps. You've got to keep your wits about you and you've got to do it all day. I I had a little fiddle, it was a hand thing, but, but they did it just with their hands. 
They knew sowing in tears is tough. I tell you it is. But they knew that if someone doesn't get out there and get that seed in the ground at the right moment, there will not be a harvest. And if someone does get out there, then there'll be sheaves in that field to pick up and bring home. I don't want to leave you in any doubt at all. There will be hard times in the rest of your life. There will be difficult times in the rest of your life. There will be times when the last thing you want to do is go out with that bag of seed over your shoulder and start spreading it. But our calling is to do that and our promise is that there will be a harvest. Some of it, please God, you will see in your lifetime. Some of the results you will see. Some of them you will have to trust to God. But not even a cup of cold water given to one of his little ones is forgotten by God. Not even the tiniest good work. It will receive its reward, said Jesus. I suspect it may be for a significant number here a defining thing for the fruitfulness of your life. Not how many gifts you've got. Not how often you're happy. But what you do when you're sad. What you do when it's difficult. Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. To be honest, I don't think I believed we'd get to our campsite at the end of that first day. But we did.